Like anything in life, there are pros and cons for buying a strata property. It seems at times that property tragics focus more on the cons, with the requirement to pay strata levies and lower capital growth than houses being the top two reasons given for not buying a unit, townhouse or villa. And while there might be some validity to these objections, there's a lot more to owning strata and living in strata that should be understood before making blanket statements like all units make bad investments. There are risks and responsibilities, but there can be also a number of benefits for people who choose to live in or invest in multi-unit developments. But let's face it, not everyone has a temperament to live in a cooperative space, and that's one of the things we're going to explore today, the realities of being part of body corporate. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Today, we're joined by Karen Stiles, the Executive Director of the Owners Corporation Network, the independent voice of Strata Owners. In her 11 years with OCN, she has heard the gamut of the good and the bad news stories relating to what she refers to as the Strata Birth, Deaths and Marriages aka the first annual general meetings, living cooperative and collective sale. Karen's experience on strata committees began with her first apartment in 1984 and includes everyone's worst nightmare, overseeing a large defects claim after an off-the-plan purchase. And today she's the chair and secretary of an older, medium-sized strata scheme, which has undertaken foyer, lift and fire safety upgrades. So she's got hands-on experience as well. A lot has changed in the strata space since we last spoke with Karen back in 2019, and that's episode 68 if you'd like to go back and listen. So we're really looking forward to an update. Now, thanks so much for joining us today, Karen. Uh, would you say you're more or less hopeful these days than you were back then, if you can remember? <laughs> Thanks, Veronica. I'd say more hopeful in New South Wales in particular with the Building Commission being set up uh, before the end of this year. That should be a game changer for uh, quality of apartments and townhouses and villas. Excellent. And we're going to probably talk, well, we are going to talk about that, more about that straight up really because that probably is the biggest change that has happened in Strata in New South Wales since then, the appointment of David Chandler as the Building Commissioner. Um, can you run through the changes that you, you've observed from your perspective as an owner and also the representative of other owners? Yes, uh, the changes have been dramatic. Um, it's been extraordinary to watch a, a single person turning the Titanic um, in super quick time. David Chandler was appointed in 2019 and in four short years, He's managed to bring in a suite of legislation uh, which has been able to hold developers to account and has started to improve the remedial industry as well. And I think more fundamentally, there's been a seismic shift in the culture, mostly in the construction industry. Clearly, there's still outliers. Um, we've watched Top Place um, go into, uh, well, basically implode. Um, 
But other than that, there's been a lot of good news in, in seeing people within the industry heartened and keen for change. Um, that's quite extraordinary given it, the regulatory failure over a couple of decades and the, the culture that was there very much so before. Mm. And so what's really happening over the next sort of, you mentioned later this year, what's, what's the major changes going forward from here? They're actually separating the uh, Building Commission from New South Wales Fair Trading. So it will be a standalone commission um, with uh, specialist people within it. Um, looking for staffing, I think, of about 400 people, which is an enormous change. I mean, currently within Fair Trading, they've got something like 16 investigators to cover all of Fair Trading's acts and regulations across the state. Um, it's simply not feasible. So this is quite a commitment by the New South Wales government to positive change, which in my uh, experience is the first time they've actually come down on the side of the angels being the owners and the purchasers. Uh, it's been very much industry driven before then. I remember when we first met, Karen, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is that, you know, if you bought an iron or a toaster, you get a warranty, but you buy an apartment, you've got to go to court to try to get things fixed. And, you know, it, it's such a telling, it's not hyperbole, that was not, and in, in if you are in a building that is older um, or within a certain age, I guess you still got that problem at the moment. So a lot of the changes has been happening with uh, new builds, and obviously there's remedial work. We'll talk about that. Uh, you know, want to talk more about that? Um, but changing the the landscape. I agree. I think that um, David Chandler is, like you say, one human being. Yes, he's had a team, obviously, but sheer force of nature. He's like a force of nature. He's like a cyclone. And I'm, in, I'm so amazed that he didn't give up. He almost gave up because he did resign at one point spectacularly. Um, he almost gave up, but obviously his value was seen and, you know, he was <laughs> – the the bridges were bridges were mended and he he came back or he didn't leave. Um, how are you seeing it? Sort of in terms of um, the everyday experience of people that already own strata property. So forgetting for a moment the confidence in the buying population, which is a large part of what he had to do, was to rectify the problems in our system that allowed such poorly built buildings to be con completed and then handed over to individual buyers. But there's also a huge cohort of people that already own property. Some of those properties, you know, they're, they're struggling with defects and so they've got the legacy problems of the system the way it was. So from where you sit in your in your role, how are you seeing that the I guess the experience of everyday owners of strata property in New South Wales, and I, w I will just say, I know that we're talking New South Wales here, there is relevance here for the rest of the country as well, um, but New South Wales had the worst defect problem. It was quite well publicised um, before David Chandler came on as building commissioner. So how are you seeing, you know, for individual owners of strata property, how has their experience changed as a consequence of the things that have happened in the last four years? Gosh, I think it's varied. Um, there's really well-run schemes, you know, good governance in place, and they're harmonious, right through to new buildings that are still trying to find their feet. And particularly in southwestern Sydney, 
you've got um, people with um, they don't speak English at home. It's not their first language. And so on top of learning how to live cooperatively, they're also dealing with all of those things and a lot of um, embedded issues with brand new buildings in terms of unfair contracts and uh, things like that. And the insurance market is hardening considerably. This year has really um, changed. In, in what way? Uh, because of all the natural disasters that have happened around the world, insurers are far more risk averse. And we found that strata insurance, which is a mandatory insurance, is getting uh, less available and less affordable. Um, we've got buildings that cannot get insurance and, wow. and they're not spectacular disasters. They're just, they might be rectifying defects and the insurers don't want to touch them. I can't actually understand that because the insurance doesn't cover uh, defects or consequential damage from defects. So why, why that's an issue, I don't know, but... Um, it really is a, a, a concern for a lot of schemes. So what does a building do? Like what does an owner's corporation do if they can't get the building insured? I'm afraid of the answer. I actually took that to New South Wales Fair Trading and they said, well, obviously, if they've tried to get insurance, we're not going to penalise them. But then what? I mean, they're uninsured. And what most people don't realise is that every owner is jointly and severally liable for maintaining the building. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mm. So if you have somebody slip and trip and injure themselves or worse, um, without ins building insurance, those owners are personally liable. So how does a buyer looking at buying into a building? I mean, we review a strata report, right? And we know that there is no set standard for format for strata reports. Likewise, in many uh, there's no set uh, reporting format for strata management, right? Um, so that these things would help, obviously, but there is none of that. So when you get a strata report, you're sort of assuming that that's a set format, but if you don't read enough of them, you're not going to realise that there is none. So therefore, we have a template or a proforma, if you like, that allows us to work out what's missing, you know, from that. And one of the things we do look at is, is the insurance and the building valuation, when it was done, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so... We wouldn't buy, I guess that'd be something that for us would be flagged very quickly because we'd say, hang on a minute, there's no insurance certificate on this building. Um, but how else could somebody find out whether or not the building was insurable? I honestly don't know the answer to that. Um, people are finding out, you know, at the time of renewal. And what I'm hearing from brokers is they need to start uh, putting out feelers about three months before the uh, insurance is due which is a new phenomenon. Um, I'm hearing of buildings where the premium's gone up 65% or yeah. more. There's certainly been a lot of conversations, public conversations about uh, commissions paid on strata insurance. So that's that's part of the equation that we're trying to, to deal with. But how would somebody know? I don't know. Well, the thing is the bank doesn't really ask for it. So... You know, they it's not part of the DD. It's, you know, you do it when you're buying a, an, a house. You need to take, provide your insurance to the bank. But the bank doesn't want to see the strata insurance because they just assume that the, the building's got strata insurance. Um, and so, but maybe there's, you know, maybe the banks catch on to, you know, their assets because really it's their assets most of the time, right? If they catch on that 
they're not insured, um, which would be quite easy for them to do that, to be honest. Um, you know, could they, they basically be able to get lending on them and then the building's going to be devalued because people can't borrow to they'll basically blacklist the building. Um, has, has, have, you found, have you heard of anyone not getting finance or, or, or issues around this sort of thing yet? Or maybe this is a bit of a canary in the coal mine for people that you know, are buying into buildings that aren't insurable? Certainly with buildings like Opal Tower, they're having to place their insurance overseas. They don't even have a line item in the budget for the insurance premium because they don't know what it could be. Um, they're very much at the mercy of the international market. I mean, that's a, an extreme example, but it, I'm told that those owners actually can't get car loans because they don't have an asset that, uh, you know, to, to lend against. So, but again, that's, that's an extreme example. Um, but it is a, a, a serious concern and there has been an independent review over the last couple of years. Uh, looking into the availability and affordability of strata insurance. One of the things that I, I like to, I mean, we're connected on LinkedIn and, and I love some of the stuff that you share, Karen, and, so, and the stuff that you comment on as well. I find that sort of I keep in touch sort of vicariously by a lot of the things that interest you. Um, I noticed that there's, we're getting in New South Wales a, um, a strata commissioner. And so would that help in this sort of space, do you think? Definitely having a uh, focus on strata will be a big step forward. Um, and I do hope that the, well, there is a body corporate commissioner in Queensland, but I don't think their remit is as broad. We still have to find out what the remit is of the new commissioner. So it is John Minns, who's been the property services commissioner for the last couple of years. But basically, all he's been looking at during that time is strata. Uh, related issues. So we'll work very closely with with him. Um, we've got an upcoming roundtable on debt recovery because there's quite a high incidence of owners' corporations bankrupting owners for unpaid levies, which the financial counselling uh, organisations are very concerned about. So um, we're looking at a lot of those things. Certainly we're looking at the, you know, the... the um, efficacy of the first AGM, where owners are basically blindsided. The developer still owns a lot of the lots and, you know, they're landed with uh, long-term inflated contracts. There's related entities. There's there's so much unknown in there. Karen, there's a huge uh, rental crisis, right, which has changed a lot over the last four years and, um, you know, investors exiting, not enough investors buying, um, a real shift in in living, you know, options as well. People can't afford houses, and then you know, more owner occupiers are going into sort of strata. I guess. How are these dynamics changing? You know, the typical strata and how it's run, and you know, is it putting it? You know, and and how, what's your thoughts on the rental crisis? I guess, and how bad it is. We're hearing of queues of thirty people. It it must be so stressful for someone looking for a home. Uh, we were talking just yesterday with Brisbane City Council. They've set up a task force to look at short stays. They've got obviously different legislation to New South Wales, but the, the short stay penetration has been considerable. And it, it might be a small number across Australia, but in certain pockets, it's really high numbers. You know, and we're hearing of new buildings in Sydney where 
you know, residents move in and find that 30% or more of the apartments are short-term let. And are those, are they people that have bought the property with that intention or are they developer stock that the developers um, reserved, you know, a number of apartments within the building, for example, and that's always been their intention or a bit of both? Well, there's a particular developer that has that, um, you know, th that model. But I, in general, I think there's a lot of, there are still a lot of investors out there and they are buying these properties to short-term let in, you know, prime locations, much to the despair of the resident owners because of the wear and tear, the costs, the nuisance. When you talk about the first AGM is interesting because I sort of remember, you know, years and years and years ago I bought a, a brand new property and then I was there for the first AGM and we had a strata manager that had, was was appointed that was, um, you know, I think the developer had a relationship with the developer and there was also a property manager that managed all the investment properties because they'd been involved in, they had a, a, a contract with the developer. Um, it, it turned out all good in the end. In, in both cases, it was a good property manager and also a good strata manager. So, I, you know, I had no concept of how it can turn bad. Um, but you are, like you say, you're blindsided, you rock up. A lot of this stuff doesn't have to be disclosed. Um, a lot of it is just going on around you and you wouldn't even think about, most owners wouldn't even consider that these things can be all, you know, locked in and, and locked and loaded before you move in. Or with the short-term rentals, for instance, you know, that, that, that it's allowed and there has been no consideration for putting limitations or what or controls around that, et cetera, et cetera. So has is that still is it still the wild west or or are there things in place that actually there are other sort of controls in place now that do mean that there's mandatory disclosures to new buyers of off the plan properties uh all the examples that i have are very much about undisclosed related entities um and i'm thinking of of one fairly new building it's in the hundred thousands now strata plan hundred thousand um no right and they, <laughs> so i know wow. it's extraordinary um they have a, a signed up to a 10-year building and defects management contract so they thought it was a building manager turns out they don't do building management at all but it's a 10-year contract for defects when the warranty period expires in six years so it was and it was a related entity. Uh, they ended up in NCAT and actually paid out the contract to cancel it um, because that was cheaper than getting lawyered up and you know getting dragged through the courts. But um, there's hundreds of those contracts out there. Karen, is there um? What's your sort of take on people doing remedial work to these buildings? Is it are they finding it hard to? You know, get all uh, owners to agree to get the contracts to, um, you know, get a builder to commit. You know, to even get finance on it. Are, are people, you know, have all the great intentions to want to do these remedial works, whether it's cladding or whatever it might be, um, but they're just struggling with getting the work done. Any decision by a committee is um, interesting, shall we say? <laughs> like, isn't that how we got the camel? Um, so, 
every building's different. There'll be some that just drive these things through. They've got sophisticated committees and owners that understand that this is an investment that they need to invest in and enhance the amenity and the values, both capital and, and rental. And there's others who don't. But for those trying to do things, certainly the Design and Building Practitioners Act has had a huge impact on remedial works because there had to be a design practitioner sign off on it, an accredited uh, practitioner. And then you've got labour shortages and you've got building materials going up 40%. So it's been a, a tough um, two years at least in that space. Um, waterproofing is particularly um, impacted and had one building where they budgeted 350000 and the quotes came in at $1.5 So, yeah, and getting people, you know, um, companies are struggling to get staff as well, so that's been, you know, added to the delays, if you will. So you've got, you got upward pressure on strata levies, obviously, because, you know, costs of, of maintaining and, and doing remedial works and obviously the insurance costs that you mentioned earlier. And look, the, the fact is that, of course, you know, and I've, I've come across loads of buildings where there've been defects, they've taken the, the builder slash developer to court, they've won, but they've never won the full amount to cover all everything that needs to be done. So they've still got a shortfall. So they've, they've had to usually raise some special levies to pay for the legal costs to get them, you know, through the court process. Then there's, there's a shortfall. So there's a few more special levies to be done. And, you know, certainly when we look at buildings where this is, this, we're a long way down the, the path of this and they're nearly at the end, there's a lot less risk than if somebody's at the beginning of this process. Um, but, you know, this is, and like you say, it's it's ruling by committee as well. So you, you've got a you've got a group of people driving this. You generally aren't experts in this area, so it can be really tough for individuals operating in this and groups operating obviously in this space. And you know, I started off. I asked you the question. You're more hopeful. It so far it's been pretty doom and gloom, but there has been legislation that's changed in New South Wales. Is that making that process easier or is it the fact that you've got these external pressures and external upward pressures on costs and also a shortage of labour, et cetera, et cetera? Is that sort of counteracting and negating the, the I guess, the advances that have been made in the legislative space? I guess the improvements have been mostly in the new build space and we're starting to see buildings delivered. In fact, uh, one of the first buildings that has 10-year latent defects insurance I think has just been finished. So that that's an, a hugely exciting uh, improvement on top of the ICERT uh, star rating system, which, you know, we're so used to it with fridges and washing machines, you know, in terms of that, you know, it's not just the ticket price of the item, is it? It's the ongoing costs in terms of energy or water. And in, in terms of buildings, it's, you know, the defects costs or whatever. Um, so... Those couple of things have made a, a huge improvement. The remedial space has been very rocky for two years, but that'll start to settle down as people, you know, come to grips with the the new legislation and what needs to be done. And I think we'll see the rewards of that. You know, you you hear about waterproofing repairs, and then you hear that. that a year later, it's leaking again because they're notoriously hard to find. So this will put rigour into that process and actually put the thought into it be 
instead of just going, oh, we think it's here and we'll, you know, put some right. chewing gum in. Yeah. So, yeah, th there's definite positives in that sense. So with and, and on that, which is a different issue, which is the flammable cladding, and this isn't obviously just a New South Wales issue, there's flammable cladding across the country. Um, in New South Wales, there's, there's a thing called Project Remediate, right? And so that's meant to be helping uh, owners, corporations to, uh, I guess, facilitate the commencement of these, uh, you know, recladding projects uh, and help them with the costs, but not to completely defray those costs because at the end of the day, it's all part of maintenance of a building, right? And it was the, shouldn't be, but it is. Um, the owners corporation has a responsibility to, to make that safe, right? To make that building safe. So they've got an obligation to attend to this, but the state government put forward this project to help buildings uh, go through, down this path. But it seemed to be that there was a fair amount of resistance early on from what I could see looking in from the outside. What's happening with Project Remediate? It's pretty much uh, completed the first uh, pilot of six buildings. Two of them were OCN members. So I had lots of late night chats with them as, as they went through the process. It is quite complex, I'd have to say. There's seven or eight contracts involved um, and there's lots of different contractors and supervisors and then the, the you know, overarching uh, Hansen Junken. So it's taken a while to, to get through that process. But in the end, both were quite happy that the building was remediated. They had uh, guaranteed insurance at the end of it and the insurers had given them some leeway because they were as part of this project. Um, council orders were, um, you know, put on hold while it was happening. So they didn't have to deal with a lot of peripheral things that are very stressful um, for a committee. Um, and both of them were very happy with the quality of the work. The fact that the responsibility was taken off these volunteer committee members who feel an enormous responsibility to the other owners. So they were really thrilled with that. And I know one of them said to me that, uh, you know, paying off the loan has added about $30 um, a week to their levies. And he said, I can live with that. And they, they fixed up other things as well. Obviously, when you take the cladding off, there could be all sorts of nasties underneath. Yeah, and you, of course you've got a building covered in scaffolding. It's a lovely opportunity to, you know, maybe do the windows or paint things or, you know, whatever else needs to be done that, that, that doesn't get done. But that's six, a trial with six buildings and yet there's hundreds that have still got this cladding, correct? And it's not just New South Wales. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm aware, I don't know what the, I mean, you probably can shed light on what's happening in other states perhaps um, through your, you know, connections through the OCN. But um, this is going to take a long time before we properly have safe buildings, correct? Well, it has taken a long time already. Uh, I mean, the UK is still nowhere near it also so it's a it's a huge problem but they're certainly getting there some buildings are going it alone some buildings have been you know in negotiations with the builder so yeah different buildings made different decisions i'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions and you can find out all about what i'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au and there you'll find resources for first home buyers details about my buyers agent mentoring program 
access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs, or lower North Shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Karen, do you see that um, kind of what I was mentioning before is that you know investors selling usually to an owner-occupier, maybe it's a first-time buyer, and the dynamic of a building shifting from maybe an investor building to maybe more owner-occupy building. Do you think that's happening? And then there's more ownership or more care, I guess, from the owners a little bit where it's their home, right? And they want it to... Do, do you find that there's a real uh, drive behind you know, better run strata and people being more aware of their obligations and responsibilities and you know people taking it a lot more serious than they have in the past? Can you see a real shift over the last few years since you've been doing it for so long? Mm, I don't think we can totally typecast investors as being hands-off no. but there is a lot of that and certainly if you're an owner occupier you know what's going on you come home every night to your home and you know you want to be happy to come home uh i'm on the lower north shore and what i've actually seen is buildings going from very high owner occupiers to much more rentals yeah in my particular building um but i think Again, it, it probably depends where you are. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So I think you're I'm just sort of wondering if we're, we're taking it more seriously. And I think just because of the shift in ownership, you know, typically, um, you know, a lot of apartments have been investor-driven, right? You know, they have been owned, a lot of renters. And, you know, I'm just thinking whether over the years you're seeing it shift to more owner-occupy buildings just because, you know, that's what a lot of first-home buyers have to buy, particularly in Sydney. Um and if that's changing the whole thought process behind strata committees and, you know, people are caring about their buildings more rather than the, in the past while the, I don't want to stereotype investors, a lot of investors, like you say, don't see it and they just want to be a hands-off approach and they're just happy to go along with the tide. And if all the, you know, if a building's majority owned by investors, then things can just get pushed years down the line because there's no one really driving it, right? Um, is, is, are you think that, is that changing or is it, do you think that's, it's still, you know, nothing major. Again, I think it depends on the building. There's one in Piermont that is uh, predominantly rented and it's one of the best run buildings I've seen. And it, its chairman is an investor, um, but he understands the value of an asset and looking after investing in that asset. So it's beautifully run. They have the fastest Wi-Fi because that's going to attract quality tenants and, you know, the highest rentals. And there's very much a mindset in that building of we need to be um, the, the building of choice in this area for tenants. And it would be wonderful if there was more of that. And that's owner-occupiers and, you know, investors. That is interesting, though, because, I mean, obviously in Piemont, there's a lot of apartments. So I guess they're, they're being um, quite commercial in their approach. That, Like you say, you've got, you've got an investor who understands the asset is an asset and that needs to be carefully looked after and, and they really look at the unique selling point of that building. So that's pretty interesting. Do you find, I mean, obviously Sydney's, um, you know, there's been a lot more building going on and now we've obviously got this this 
you know, well-publicised housing shortage across the country. And so, and our state government in particular is very, very motivated to get more buildings built um, quickly to house people. Um, does that does that excite you or concern you, the speed within, within which we're going to need to start building more, more housing? And obviously a lot of it's going to be strata buildings, right? Yes. Uh, the speed does concern me. So we need to, you know, maintain the focus on quality in amongst labour shortages, material shortages. I actually think it needs to be a two-pronged thing. One side of it is increasing supply, but the other side of it, it is, is about clawing back long-term housing from the short-term market. Right. And that's a huge problem. So can you put some numbers around that? Because um, <laughs> I... Um, I've, uh, it's one of our questions to ask you about, you know, the Airbnb slash short term. It's not all Airbnb, but it's almost like Band-Aids, you know, Band-Aids is a brand and we all just talk about those things you put on a cart as Band-Aids. Um, now we talk about short term rental as Airbnb. Um, to what extent do you think that is a problem in a place like Sydney. You know, we've spoken to, we spoke to Michelle Adairs, who's the chair of um, the, uh, oh God. Anyway, she's in the community housing sector and I can't remember the exact name of the, the organisation she chairs, but she's also, she's a chair of um, Housing Tasmania as well. And, you know, she, she says, well, don't have a go at all short-term rentals because there's regional areas where that's actually an important part of the economy. So we have to be very careful about talking about one solution to the short-term, uh, to the, um, the rental crisis, to the housing crisis. And, and likewise, there's been a lot of ven uh, uh, investor bashing that's going on out there because rents have been rising as if, as if just investors can, you know, raise rents willy-nilly whenever we feel like it, which is not the case. Um, but I do know we're talking about, say, a very densely populated city like like Sydney, where we do have housing shortages. And so in a densely populated area, how much do you think it is an issue? Because obviously we've got hotels here to look after tourism. Um, the hotel industry would love it if if Airbnb were shut down in, in terms of the apartments in, in Sydney CBD, for argument's sake. So how much of an issue is it in, in a more dense uh densely populated area. So I gave you the example of the building that was, you know, upon 30%. occupation was 30%. Mm. Yeah. That's that's pretty high and has probably grown since. So some areas like the eastern suburbs it can be as high as 20%. And that's that's quite an impost. I was in Byron Bay not all that long ago and that was awful to see. That whole community has been hollowed out. And what was extraordinary to me, and it took me a day or so to realise what the phenomenon was, but there were queues of cars coming and going. And it was it, all the people that have been pushed out were commuting to work. Oh, right. Well, there's been, there's been bad um, traffic in and out of Byron for years, so that would make it even worse, yeah. I mean, they've, they've, I think they've come up with a 60-day limit in the last couple of weeks, so up there, from my understanding, and um, 60 days, it's one-fifth, or what is it, even less, it's one-sixth of the year, right? And, you know, to make it profitable on one-sixth of the year is going to be really difficult for these Airbnbs. And I think there's also, you know, but is in Victoria, I think there's vacancy tax now. So if you're not in a, your holiday home, living there for a certain amount of time per year, 
um, then you're going to pay an additional tax. Um, do you think this is really the direction we're going in um, just due to the crisis that, you know, we do need to have some much, you know, put priority of people who for homes rather than places for people to rent while they're holidaying? I'd love to know when our homes became commodities. You know, that's been a, a very subtle creep, but a, a very profound one. Um, Byron's been desperate for the 60-day cap for a long time, and the previous government was more interested in tourism dollars and all of that. So it's wonderful to hear that they're now going towards that. And there were others that had their hands up. If that got through with them, they'd, they'd want to um, go the same way. You know, you've got the state government putting um, housing targets on local government and then taking away local government's right to manage that housing compared with, you know, tourism. Yeah. I think Chris raised a really interesting point. We're, we're, I think it's when we were talking to Michelle a few weeks back and about, you know, the 180-day cap. Basically, that means if you gave one house a 365-day cap... <laughs> i.e. they could just go hell for leather, then then that's going to increase competition in the space. That's going to reduce profitability. And then potentially you're not taking out quite so many houses from or, or properties from the, the short-term market, you know, from the long-term market to put in the short-term market. So it's sort of a bit to put a cap on it actually potentially takes more properties out of the long-term rental space, which is just an interesting way of looking at it. But if you bring that down to 60 days, as you're saying, that's two months of the year. It, you know, if you are going to use your property a lot and you just want a little extra income, that works out perfectly. But if you are buying a property specifically, taking it out of the long-term rental market and putting it into the short-term rental market, that's that's you know that's going to require a lot less properties out there to be able to charge the rent that potentially will make that profitable. And then, of course, then the hotels are going to be happy because they can either put up their room rates or they can, well, they can take all the take you know. Basically, take all the tourists, but back to, back to the um, the strata space though, because of course there's there is certain legislation that um, I guess in a way takes control over the, uh, away from the owners' corporation in terms of how you manage your own building. Um, that's one of them. Pets is another. Um, so you know there's legislation to allow pets, and then it's up to individual buildings to decide how they're going to you know, what they're going to allow and, and how they're going to be reasonable about that. You work with owners' corporations all the time. What's the sort of attitude towards that? Do do owners' corporations tend to welcome the framework or do they tend to, um, you know, get their backs up because they don't want to be told how to run things? The pet issue was quite divisive as an example um, and buildings did want the right to decide how their community was governed and that has been taken away from them um, and there's further legislation going to parliament i think this week that will remove their right to even impose a bond a pet bond so uh or an application fee in some cases so i was hearing of bonds of two and a half thousand dollars I know it's funny you talk about the pet bond. I, I, we interviewed a property manager Lisa in some time ago, and she was talking about that in terms of individual properties that you know property managers haven't. From to my knowledge, I might be way off beam here, but to my knowledge, property managers were uh, no, are no longer and have for some time been no longer able to charge 
tenants a pet bond, whereas previously could. And she said, actually, that was made it harder for people with pets to get a place to rent because previously they were able to offer, look, you know, my, I've got a good pet and I'm prepared to put my money where my mouth is. And by taking that away from them made it even less attractive to allow somebody with a t- pet to rent the property. So in a way it's sort of a bit but, – but with Strata it's a little different because you can't sort of say to somebody you're not allowed to buy the property, you know. <laughs> um, so so that's going to make it – that's slightly different I guess but that makes it even – so how do then Strata claw back if there are damages, how do they claw back um, costs to cover that? Yeah, we're certainly going to have to deal with that. Um, my pause before was thinking to myself that um, I've never understood why there isn't a bond for kids because <laughs> when, when I flooded with a girlfriend, we had a, a, a dog, two cats and two small children of hers and the kids did so much damage. <laughs> Maybe she'd be there bond you for go. parents. No bonds. <laughs> All right. I mean, is there any sort of, uh, I mean, pet issue, obviously, you know, more power, I guess, to the owner and potentially the renter, right? I think that's, I'm, I'm a dog lover and a cat lover, so I'm all for that. But you know, what about some other things that are a bit divisive in the community that probably need to change? I mean, electric charging of cars, I mean, that's a that's another one where it's not as cut and dry, right? Like, is there any other things that are, people just didn't know till they they hadn't lived in Strata before. They, maybe they rented before, but now as an owner, they want to do something they couldn't do. Even renovations, like, and the, the process before that. What are some things that people really need to be aware of that are still issues in the sort of makeup of Strata? Definitely the micro mobility, uh, so scooters and things like that are an issue with a lot of you know imported gear of, of you know varying qualities. That's more of a concern, I think to EVs, but there's also talk in New South Wales and elsewhere about electrification of of older buildings that have gas, and that could be central gas heating for the water. Um, These are big ticket items that people have to grapple with. And in fact, it's broader than just the building because there's also the capacity at a local area, like does, does the substation produce enough electricity for them to change. So there's lots of... Uh, well, they've got, all got roofs. I don't know, understand why they don't all become their own little little, um, little generator themselves. Cover the, cover the north face with, with, um, <laughs> with solar panels and sell power to the neighbouring <laughs> houses. Yeah, uh, Strata's been very slow to take up solar. Again, because you've got to get it through. I mean, they've dropped the voting to 50% uh, for uh, sustainability infrastructure, but it's still a big deal. And then you've got roof membranes. So you've got to, you know, navigate all of that. And committee members are busy enough on the day to day without, unless there's a champion for something like that. Right. Yeah, so got it. There's often not an appetite for new and improved things. Which is a shame. And then, of course, if you then sell the electricity from the solar to the individual apartments, there's a whole world of regulation around retailing energy. And so um, owners' corporations would then have to deal with hardship cases and all sorts of things that they might not want to get involved in. 
I hadn't even thought of that. So, I mean, that's just a classic, you know, peel back the layers. And I guess it's a shame because there's this sort of looks obvious, you know, like they'd just be solve a whole heap of problems, right? Um, but like you're saying, you, know, you suddenly get caught up in a whole new regulatory framework, particularly with energy. Um, yeah. Karen, on the um, renovation sort of, what sort of, uh, do, do people probably think it's easier than it is just to buy a strata? As soon as it settles, I'm ripping up the carpet, I'm putting floorboards in, I'm taking the bathroom out, I'm putting the kitchen in, I'm doing all new wiring, I want to change the windows. Like, you know, can you sort of enlighten people who haven't gone down that path, potentially the challenges in that thought process? Mm. So there's definitely a process and it has to be approved by the owner's corporation. And depending on the severity, like if you're removing walls or whatever, um, in my own building, we had a renovation going on when it was full lockdown during COVID. And they were removing all the tiles from the two bathrooms, the laundry and the kitchen. And it went on for days. And it was awful to be trapped in the building with that going on. But permission to do that had probably taken four or five months because it was a major renovation. And, you know, the, the committee has to meet. It has to make sure that it's protecting all the other owners, that it's going to be done properly, that there's insurances. So it is quite a process to do major renovations. And then you need a bylaw. Yes. Yes, unless you've got a blanket one in place in your scheme. Yeah, and so, oh, God, I can only imagine what it must have been like being trapped in a building with all that, that sort of building work on because you rely on, on doing it during the day normally when people are at work, don't you, because it is really noisy and it reverberates everywhere. So... I mean, it is a lengthy process, people, and a lot of people, one of the things that we look at when we look at buying a strata property for, for clients is if it's got timber floors, we want to make sure that that's been through that approval process because, I mean, have you come across um, any buildings that have enforced ripping people ripping up timber flooring because they haven't put appropriate soundproofing in place or they haven't got the approvals? Yes, and I've heard of a, a pergola, an outdoor pergola being removed. So that was an expensive little mistake mm. to not get approval for that. But council got involved in that one. Yeah. So you're going to get less likely you're going to get forgiveness. You know, you don't ask for forgiveness after the event. <laughs> you go through the process. Particularly if it's floorboards and noise. Yeah, yeah. Is it on the OCN, right, is it what is on the top of your wish list? Like, you know, I, I would imagine that you've got things that you would love to see change in this space you know, what? What is? what are your top, what's your number one thing? I guess it would be greater education and support uh, for people contemplating, like right from the contemplation start, uh, you know, point to living in a building so that they understand what this is, this magical beast called strata. Um, and, and how to manage it. it, it it's about managing expectations. And committees often work really hard. They're not paid. They're rarely thanked. They're trying to manage the human side as well as the, the technical and, and all of that. They need more support. And I'm not even sure if it is the right paradigm. Um, I kind of like the somebody said the other day that they're in a bill to rent 
building and they'll, they'll never move out because it's well managed by the asset owner and there's lots of amenities. So very You mean happy. a tenant? You're mm. talking about a tenant here? Yeah. Whereas as, as opposed to being owner-occupier in a strata building, is that what you're saying? It's a lot easier being a tenant in a build-to-rent where somebody's managing it? So, I, I, look, I agree with you. I think that um, there is very little information out there for people and a very little understanding of the obligations. You mentioned earlier about the what jointly and severably um, <laughs> liable. I remember having dinner once with Amanda Farmer, a strata lawyer, and, and she said to me, you know, what people do not realise about when they're buying strata is that they are responsible for that building. In, you know, you know they, as an owner's corporation, they all have individual contribution to make and individual responsibility and we were referring to mascot towers i mean you referred to opal towers earlier we were talking about mascot towers and that that terrible situation where a 12 year old building started sinking and and people you you can't just go oh, i'm gonna get out of here now just <laughs> walk away from it they had an obligate have an obligation to to bring that building back to a livable state, right, or to have some some resolution anyway, and they can't, nobody can just run away from it. So I, I hear you. I think that the education, so people are aware of that. But there, I, I know also that Amanda is a real advocate for, for the strata space. She loves living, well, she's moved to the country now, but previously she was living in a strata building and loved it. Um, and there's lots, and you live in a strata building. You choose to live in one, and I, can, I don't live in one, but I can certainly see the appeal, and I'm thinking about that as my next move. So... I guess that educational piece is really important. So this has been an interesting chat just in terms of what's changed since um, we last spoke. It sounds like, yes, a lot has changed, but in, but also a lot hasn't. <laughs> so uh, do you want to finish this off? Have you got an example of a property Dumbo for us, a lesson that we can all learn from? I'd go back to the first AGM and I would absolutely do my homework on that and I would find out the owners of every lot in that building, find out how much the developer owns and do a search to find out who the other owners are and be really well prepared for that. Um, one of the new buildings that uh, joined OCN, uh, the minutes of the first meeting uh, just went, everything sailed through. So, you know, inflated long-term contracts, embedded networks, the whole shebang. Um, that building and defects manager, the minutes showed that the developer owned um, X amount of lots. There was actually a savvy owner who did a little RP data search and discovered that uh, many of those had actually been sold. The developer didn't own them, but the developer appointed strata manager had um, gone along with that, with the voting. Right. Interesting. So, okay, so your Dumbo is turning up to your first AGM without doing any prep. That's the Dumbo. And the the lesson here is that there is a, a, an amount of prep that can be done before turning up to your first AGM so you don't get blindsided. And I guess educating yourself and taking it seriously and recognising the risks that are inherent in, in a brand new building, that is, not not your first AGM after you're bought into a 25-year-old building. <laughs> That's that's going to be a totally different kettle of fish. But the you know if you've bought off the plan, which we're not fans of anyway, um, but if you have gone and bought off the plan, the first time you rock up to an AGM, uh, a lot of that stuff's going to be preset and not by invested owners such as yourself, but by the developer who 
has a different agenda. And so it's well worth doing your research in terms of who you're dealing with. Um, very good point. And that information is out there, obviously, in via Apidata. And, you know, generally speaking, you only get one contract to approve for the strata management, the building management, the cleaners, whatever. Source alternative contracts. Go out and price check and be prepared to say, um, you know, we can do this better or differently. Don't just accept the status quo and be prepared to go on the committee and, and be prepared to tell people why you're going on the committee and force that conversation because people often put their hands up without realising what they're doing or, or they've got agendas. Um, so find out why people want to be on the committee and what they're going to bring to that. What are the qualities that they bring to it? Because they are running a, a medium to large size business. Mm, yeah. I mean, even if it's a new building or it's an old building, you can ask those questions, right? If you're um, you're even you buying into it, what's everyone trying to achieve here? What's, you know, ask these questions, you're going to get more insight. Karen, I guess the final point is, you know, the building commission, uh, um, you know, building prices, you know, lowest approvals really since 2010 or something. I think it's ridiculous, like how low, um, you know, uh, buildings are getting approved. And if anything, anything's get approved, it's really at the top end because that's where developers can potentially make money in this market. What's your sort of take on the next few years in terms of, you know, this rental crisis leading into a bit of a building crisis? You know, a lot of developers gone under. A lot of, so it's easy to sort of target the developers in these situations, but you know, a lot of them are hurting, right? And they'd love to build, but they they can't make it profitable at the moment. And what's your take on that? The builders are certainly hurting, and the subcontractors are certainly hurting. But then, you know, the other side of the coin is land banking. If you look at Little Bay in Sydney. Um, a developer has bought a patch of land there um, that was approved for medium density, ready to go, has owned it for years, um, waiting until he get, they get approval for high density. And it's total overdevelopment of a pristine area um, and just happy to sit on that land. So, you know, they talk about the desperate need for supply and, and how planning's stalling them. It's not always the case. And oftentimes, nobody really looks at and correlates housing, you know, like approvals. Does that actually flow through to an actual building being built or did they land bank? Yeah, yeah. It's a very good point. And we interviewed an economist called uh, Dr. Cameron Murray some time back, and he was he was pointing that out as well. He said it's all well and good to say that you got to point to the to the planner, to the councils, and the state government to to release and rezone land, but until it's profitable enough, you know the the owners of that land is not going to develop it. And if they think that by waiting they're going to make more money, they'll wait. And I think that that's just a commercial reality that we need to recognise. And so good on you for bringing it up, Karen. It's been a really interesting chat, and um, thank you so much for coming on and and once again sharing sharing what's been happening in your space. So I know that you're a tireless advocate out there and um, and very passionate and, and care a hell of a lot for for what you do. So you know, thanks for doing it. It's fabulous to talk to you guys. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at 
thepodcastnetwork.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.